Hey, good morning, everybody. Great to see you guys. I woke up this morning. I looked outside. I saw the rain, and I thank the Lord. I thanked... I thank the Lord. Listen, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, the Valley of the Sun, and it's taken 10 years to grow accustomed to this natural habitat, and I feel like it was stripped away. I'm back in relationship with the Oregon that I'm accustomed to. You know, I don't have to spray myself, you know, with like sunscreen every day, and, and our plants are all dying. So it, it was great to wake up, beautiful day. We're going to jump into the Word this morning as we continue our series called The Pursuit, as we're exploring the biblical call to holiness. Would love to have a Bible in your hand. We're going to be doing a lot of text work this morning, so if you'd like a Bible, you can raise your hand. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to to totally take this, this home, and that would be a holy thing to do. That's not stealing in church. You can always take these Bibles home with you. For the last few weeks, over the summer, we have been exploring this biblical call to holiness, the invitation that is woven through both Old and New Testament, where God has called his people to be a holy people. This incredible invitation from a holy God to us saying, I want you to be holy in the same way that I am holy. And many times, you know, in church, the topic of holiness is not something that incites a lot of excitement. In fact, many times we have the same emotional connection to the word holiness that we do with like a dentist appointment. You know, like people don't get excited about like going to the dentist, like, oh yeah, just like look in there and, you know, find things that are wrong. I love that, you know, and, and just drill into it. And that is actually uh, a misrepresentation of holiness. What we've been seeing and learning together is that the invitation to live a holy life is simply an invitation to move closer to God. To move closer to God. That's how we've been defining holiness for the last few weeks together. It's a pursuit where every day with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, with our bodies, we move closer to God and move closer to becoming more like him in our lives. For those that were here last Sunday evening at the baptism service, we witnessed truly a holy moment, and I mean that in every sense of the word, as 15 people were moved by God to get baptized. It was especially meaningful for me as I had the honor and the privilege of baptizing my oldest son, Hayden, uh, who made the decision to get baptized last Sunday. Incredible, we have, we have some photos up here. It, it was an unbelievable moment uh, for, for me as I've watched my son um, choose to follow the same Jesus that has made so many things new in my life. Over the summer, we've been opening up uh, the book of Romans together, and it was actually at the Twin Rocks camp that God spoke through his word to my son, and he came home and he said, Mom, Dad, I want to get baptized. Uh, we wept. It was a happy cry moment. 
uh, it was a big win in our family. And on the night Hayden was baptized, um, he got to share bits and pieces of his story with the church. I got to interview him and say, what was it like growing up in a home with mom and dad following Jesus? And what made you want to get baptized? And he wrote out a baptism story. And I got to read a couple parts here because this, this is just good stuff. So he, he says this. This is my son's baptism story. He says, my story starts as a little boy. About three years old, I was introduced to Christ. I just thought of the Bible as a book of do's and don'ts for a long time. I thought of Jesus as a goody two-shoes rule follower who went around showing off his magical powers. <laughs> can't make this type of stuff up. I love, I love this. And then my son went on to describe that in, in his life, Jesus is no longer just a goody two-shoes, a nice person who wanted to just make him nice, but that he realized that the gospel has power to make us new. And it, it was incredible to actually witness this over the last few years in, in my son's life, watching his relationship with God Transformed from something where it's just about obeying uh, the rules, avoiding the nasty things, not hitting, you know, his, his brother, which we're still working on. God's still sanctifying that big time. He's sanctifying a lot of things, mom and dad, too. Um, but we've seen a change. And I, I wonder, you know, as I read my, my son's, you know, baptism story and watch him talk about his journey to, toward faith in Christ, leaving behind just this this idea that the Bible's just a book of rules, of how many of us, if we're being perfectly honest, our approach to the Christian life many times can, can feel like we're pursuing holiness just by obeying a set of rules and instructions. And so as we've been seeing throughout this series, a life of holiness, it, it just cannot be reduced down to a list of do's. And don'ts. Morality and religion alone will never move us closer to God. And rules do not have the power in and of themselves to transform us into the new people that God has in mind. In order to become holy, like God is holy, we must be willing to become loving like God is loving. In fact, as we'll see today, in a passage that has been absolutely challenging me in every single level of my life, we're going to see that a life of holiness, when you break it down, is really a life of love. So if you have a Bible this morning, open up to an incredible letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in the Greco-Roman city of Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians. We're going to dive in at the end of chapter 3 with a prayer that Paul prays for this church that they would grow in their holiness by growing in love. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going to dive right in at verse 11 in chapter 3. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you 
And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints or holy ones. Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness." Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, do this more and more. This is God's word. A bit of a backstory to shine light on this short letter that Paul wrote here to the Greco-Roman city of Thessalonica. It was written to, to a rather new community of Jesus followers that had left behind their pagan Greco-Roman gods and become Jesus followers had been baptized in Christ's name. A church began to form. And Paul, who had left behind the city of Thessalonica and continued to travel to other cities, preaching the gospel, planting churches, was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this letter to encourage his friends to grow in their newfound faith in Christ by pursuing two things holiness, and love. In fact, in this very short letter, the word love appears seven times and the word holiness appears eight times. It's literally in every chapter of this letter. You see the words love, you see the words holiness woven through every single piece of this letter. And the reason, I think, that Paul encourages the church to grow in these two virtues, holiness and love, is he knows that as followers of Christ, we cannot make progress in the Christian life and become the church that Christ has called us to be together unless we're constantly growing and being stretched in holiness and in love. And so Paul says, if you want to know what a life that pleases God looks like, it's a life that is overflowing in holiness and love. That's a life that pleases God. 
So what Paul gives us in this passage, which has been so, so, so helpful for me personally, and pray that it would be helpful to you in your own pursuit of holiness. This morning, we're going to see three irrefutable principles that help us grow in Christian holiness and love. This morning, three principles. And the first one goes like this. We can't have holiness without love. We cannot have holiness apart from love. Did you notice in the passage that we just read how Paul connected holiness to love? To to help us kind of take a look and follow the logic of Paul's prayer in the text that we just read, I marked it up and kind of geeked out with some inductive Bible study. So, So people for a moment that are Bible geeks may enjoy this. But this is, this is a brilliant, brilliant insight that helps us actually get a good biblical definition of holiness. Paul prays for his friends in Thessalonica, and his prayer is that they may abound and increase in love. Did you see that? It's right there in verse 12 where Paul says, May our God and Father himself, our Lord Jesus, direct our way to you. We want to come to you. And in verse 12, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. What an incredible prayer. What a wise prayer for us to pray as followers of Christ that want to pursue a life of holiness, to pray constantly, Lord, would you make me increase and abound in love, that we do not become people of love apart from the supernatural intervention of God. And so Paul prays for his friends and he says, I want you to increase and abound in love so that, so that, when we see that phrase, so that, It's alerting us that this is the purpose and aim of Paul's prayer. This is why he's praying that his friends in Thessalonica will increase and abound in love so that, Paul says, he, that is God, may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. And so you see here, and now I know it just got crazy there, and I got excited. This is what I do. You know, when I get excited, either my hands turn into claws, apparently, or, you know, I I saw this and this this was so helpful for me because even if we don't go as far, friends, of saying that holiness and love are the same thing, we at least must say that love is at the very heart of holiness or that love is an essential quality of holiness. And if you remove love, from holiness, you're left with something that isn't holy. And that's why Paul prays and he says, I want you to increase, friends, in your love for one another and for all, for everyone, so that you might be established. God might establish your hearts blameless in holiness. And there is no such thing, friends, as a holiness that is absent of love. You know, all too often in my experience as a follower of Jesus, I think we tend to treat holiness and love like separate Christian virtues. 
We're not used to putting them side by side like Paul does in this passage. People tend to pursue one or the other, either holiness or either love. And so you have some people who seem to be all about holiness, but many times holy people aren't the most loving people. I I would wager to say we've all met our fair share of people who seem to be fastidious in their pursuit of personal holiness, where your first thought is not, man, that is a loving person I want to spend some time with. And I think we've all experienced that before. And so, so Paul's showing us that, you know, in order to pursue holiness, you must abound in love. At the same time, I think it's very possible to be all about love and to have little or no regard whatsoever for holiness as God defines it. And so we tend in our Christian walk to drift toward one extreme or another in our pursuit of holiness. Case in point, moment of confession. For a brief period in my life during my Bible college years, I became a Christian monk of sorts. I've known many of you for many years, so I know many of you love me and will suspend judgment. But in my own pursuit of holiness as an overachieving, zealous guy that could do no things with moderation, I am not a moderate person. And so when I came to faith in Christ, I wanted to pursue Christ with every fiber of my being and went to Bible college, both to learn the Bible, but to grow in personal holiness and my love for Jesus. And somebody gave me a book uh, that was written and filled with many, many, many lessons from the desert fathers in Christianity. Um, I know that not many of you are struggling probably with neo-monasticism, but I'll break it down for you. The desert fathers, the desert fathers in Christian history took the call to holiness so seriously that they would separate themselves from community, go out and live in the desert. They would follow a rigorous, rigorous, rigorous routine of personal prayer, repentance, confession, and monastic silence. I was introduced to the writings of the Desert Fathers, and things started getting really weird when I began practicing monastic silence. It just got weird. I was dating my wife at the time. She's a very patient woman. And on days where I had agreed, I wanted to have the Lord help me control my my tongue I wanted intimacy with Jesus, and I was taking this desert father uh, approach. I would walk around on days where I would fast speech, and I would carry around a clipboard. I'm not joking. And if I needed to communicate something, I would write things out on the clipboard on days that I was silent but couldn't be separated from people. And let me tell you, I learned a very important lesson during that time. I did not become more holy or loving. I just became more socially awkward and weird. (laughs) I didn't become one lick holier whatsoever. I just became weirder. And for those that know me, I don't need any help in that category (laughs) whatsoever. You can ask my wife. This is all legitimate and true. 
I learned a very important lesson about holiness in my own life during that time that I have never, ever forgot because the Lord drove it home. Personal holiness is not developed in a Christian bunker, a Christian spiritual bunker where it's just you and Jesus and your Bible. It is developed in the trenches of life where you learn to abound in love for one another and for all, by the way. For people that rub you wrong, make you uncomfortable, you want to become a holy person, there's no way to become a holy person in isolation. It happens in community. And you're only as holy as you are loving. Thank you for the amens there. Thank you. But we get this so wrong, but it's so apparent in the scriptures because Jesus is constantly going around and the holiness approach of, of the Pharisees They were so fastidious in their pursuit of personal holiness, following all of these purity rules, praying, memorizing scripture constantly. We see Jesus bumping into them and essentially saying, that's not what true holiness looks like. You're, You're missing the mark. That's not the kind of holiness God is after. In fact, one of my favorite parables that Christ shared is one of these run-ins Jesus had with the religious leaders in Luke chapter 18. If you can turn to left for a minute, it'd be worth your time. Love this parable. In Luke chapter 18, Christ told this parable to essentially shine light on the kind of holiness that God is after in our lives and look at some of the wisdom that this parable offers to us about how holiness cannot be separated from love. And in Luke 18, verse 9, Luke records and he says, he that is Christ also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous or holy and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, this week, like many of you, my heart was absolutely wrecked by by the evil, the outrageous and heinous evil that we witnessed together in Charlottesville. It was so, so, so painful when that news story broke to see see that kind of heinous evil and racism in, in our day. River West, friends, we have a lot of work to do. In the same way that Paul prayed that his friends might increase and abound in in love for one another, but for all, 
I don't know if there's ever been a time in history where the church needs to grow as a holy community of love, to break down walls, to break down barriers, to embrace our brothers and sisters, to dignify all people that we meet as image bearers of God. The world needs love and more and more and more of it. Amen. Amen. And by God's grace, I pray that we can become a community of love that breaks down some walls, that is abounding in love. But in order to become that type of community, we need to keep watch on our heart. Luke gives us just such an insightful warning, and may you use this in your life as a red flag. Whenever you see this attitude come up, take it to the Lord immediately and repent of it. If in your own pursuit of holiness, you begin to look down on others with contempt, that is not the path towards holiness. Luke tells us that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous or holy and treated others with contempt. And the subtle, subtle temptation that Satan uses in our lives is an in our heartfelt, many times, pursuit of personal holiness. As we devote ourselves to prayer, there's an insidious little voice within where you begin to look around and you go, man, people are really not about prayer these days. People are just not praying. The church is not a house of prayer. You've got all these scriptures that say it's supposed to be a house of prayer. Any holy thing that God puts on your heart is an invitation to not exalt yourself, but to humbly say, God, make me into a person that by grace can reflect, reflect the beauty of who you are. Be careful of any insidious contempt that sneaks up in your heart. Kill that thing because it will never move you closer to God. Whenever contempt takes root in our heart, we're not moving closer to him. We're moving further and further away. On the flip side, while it's absolutely true that we cannot have holiness apart from love, there is really no such thing as love apart from holiness. And so while this first principle that Paul gives, that there is no such thing as holiness, we can't have holiness apart from love, that agrees with us, that excites us. The second principle is going to dig down a little bit deeper, I think, into where we are today in our culture, where we are personally. And the way that Paul's going to show us that we can't have love without Holiness is by applying that principle to our sexual purity, to our sexual purity. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul's going to turn a corner instead of just generally praying that the church would abound in love. He's going to get very specific and begin to talk about our sexuality, about our purity so let's see what Paul has to say in the first four verses of chapter 4. Following Paul's exhortation, he says, Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. 
For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, or some translations say your holiness. That word can be translated either sanctification or holiness. And that look at this, Paul says that you abstain from sexual immorality. When we look at the topic of holiness in the Bible, it is not a topic that is just relegated to certain aspects of our lives where others are, are out of bounds from the Bible's inspired word. Holiness is a topic that applies to every area of our lives, including our sexuality. And so, although it might be a surprise to you to hear a sex talk at church, Jesus and the biblical authors are constantly connecting holiness to our sexuality. And so what I know personally is that talking about sexuality in our day and age, that it is a sensitive topic, but before defenses go up and you disregard what Paul has to say, may I just say to you that I believe the picture that he paints here of our sexuality is so much more hopeful and beautiful than the way that our culture is thinking about sexuality, that would you just entertain and listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say here before dismissing it. When Paul links our personal holiness to our personal purity, and he says, this is the will of God, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The word, the Greek term he uses for sexual immorality is the word porneia in Greek. That term porneia was a general term that could refer to any sexual activity outside of a loving marriage relationship between a man and a woman. It could refer to premarital sex. It could refer to extramarital sex and affairs, emotional or physical. It could apply to pornography, rape, incest, sexual exploitation, abuse, prostitution, all which were commonplace in the Greco-Roman city of Thessalonica that Paul addressed this letter to you see, much like the city of Corinth in Paul's day, Thessalonica was infamous for its temples devoted to the Roman sex gods of Dionysus and Cabirus. And so these temples in the city, archaeologists have found these temples in the city where you would go into the temple and they would be filled with erotic images and awkward phallic statues. Really weird. Would, would be in these temples, and people would go into the temples to engage in ritual sexual activity with temple prostitutes that were held there against their will. They were slaves. Think sex trafficking in our, our culture. Women were, were kept there as slaves, and people would go in, the worshipers would go in, and they'd engage in sexual activity with these women as an expression of worship. 
It was a very, very, very sexual, broken city that Paul was writing to. And in it, they're thinking about sexuality. It was commonly, commonly just agreed upon that men and women were incapable of restraining their sexual desires or being faithful to one another in relationships. There was no hope of fidelity in relationships, and people saw their sexuality as simply a carnal appetite that they didn't have control over. Sex was certainly not a holy thing. It was just a hormone thing. And it was simply viewed as a carnal appetite that you satiate. Because of that, there was a proverb in Paul's day that he refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Where Paul quotes one of the proverbs that applied to the sexual ethics that were normative in the culture of his day. And the proverb went like this. It's a little bit weird, but be patient. It went like this, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. So you see that that phrase there in quotes is the proverb of Paul's day, but then he counters it and he says this, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, same word, porneia, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You see, the Greek understanding was that there's a material you and a physical you, and then there is a spiritual you. And the part that is really important and holy and sacred is not the physical you, your body, your sexuality. The only part of you that really, really, really matters is your soul. And so you can do whatever you want with your body, but it bears no importance whatsoever it's just like eating. When you're hungry, you eat food. When you want sex, you have sex with whoever you want to have sex with. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. And Paul turns this on its head, rejects that completely, comes along and says, you've got it all wrong, friends. You've got it all wrong. Your body is not just an aggregate of flesh and hormones and chromosomes. Your body is a temple, a holy temple that God has redeemed by the precious holy blood of his son so that the God of the universe can come and take up residence in your life. You're a temple. Not like this temple over here, that's filled with lewd images, that is unholy, that's corrupt, that's holding these women hostage against their will, exploiting people's freedom. No, you're a holy temple. It's amazing, but that is the picture of our sexuality that Paul paints in chapter 6 as he continues to explain how the Christian sexual ethic and view of our bodies is so different, so much more hopeful, so much more beautiful than just a humanistic view of sex. He shares in verses 18 and 19 these words. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 
You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Whether you agree with the basic tenets of Christianity or not, wherever you're at on your spiritual journey of moving towards God, you simply will not find another system of faith that has a higher esteem and regard for your sexuality and your body than the Bible. You won't find it. You'll never, ever find another system of faith that says you were meant to be a holy temple and your body matters. And so how you live, God cares deeply about bodies. He cares deeply about your body. And that's why the Bible's just not silent on this topic. So whether you're single or married sitting here today, Your sexuality is a sacred, indispensable, holy aspect of who you are. And that's why Paul exhorts the believers in Thessalonica with these solemn words, a solemn warning, and says, would you please, I, I beg, I pray that you would learn that your bodies are meant for holiness and honor. He does that in verses 4 and 5. Look at the tone that Paul uses so often when Christians talk about sex. They're crude. They just simply rail on another person's sin. Look at the sensitivity and the pastoral love that Paul has for these people. In verses 4 and 5, he says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. He goes on and he says that each of you would learn how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. In the end, if we take holiness apart from love, all that we're left with is lust, not love. And lust is is a hollow substitute for the love that God extends for us, that he's purposed for us. Where lust just cares about satiating and satisfying our own desires. Love wants to honor, wants to dignify the whole person. And it's so much better for the hollow substitutes that we so often settle for. Now, in preaching a sermon like this, in our day and age, I know that there are so many here that have been wounded or perhaps even currently wrapped up in things that are just sucking the joy and life away from you. And so if you'll permit me for a moment just to be a pastor and to speak for a moment to people that have been wounded before. I want you to know this morning that if somebody in your life has violated you, has used you in any way to gratify their own sexual desires in ways that left you feeling exploited, abused, and used, it's wrong 
its sin. God wants to come alongside you and step into that woundedness that you carry and bring healing and bring hope to you. I've walked alongside so many people that have carried around the same shame of sexual abuse, and I want you to know this morning that there is a God who can step in to your wounds and bring hope and healing. We have counselors here at River West. There's some of the finest people in the world that have walked alongside countless folks that have experienced the shame of sexual abuse and been instruments of God's healing. There is hope. There are resources. We're here for you. At the same time, statistically, I know in our day and age that so many people here this morning are struggling hearing a sermon like this because they're feeling stuck or caught in a sexual sin of some kind. I want you to know that the same God who can heal a person that is carrying around the wounds of sexual abuse can set you free this morning and bring healing in your life as well. There's resources, there's help. Please reach out to me, talk to me. In the end, the reason that Paul takes this pastoral tone, and thank you, River West, for just that moment there and just permitting me just to be a pastor and speak to a couple, many people this morning, I imagine, that are here. The reason that Paul gives this plea, guys, is because he has something. God has something so much more beautiful, so much better than what we so often settle He has something so much better. He has love. He has love. And that's the greatest gift of all. And it's ours. This week as I was praying and studying this passage, the Lord reminded me of something that C.S. Lewis wrote in an essay called The Weight of Glory about, about our humanity and the pursuit of holiness and And I felt inspired to share this with you. I'm going to put this quote up on the screen. Listen to C.S. Lewis's words. He says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Far too easily pleased. If Lewis is correct with his insight on our humanity, and I believe he is, than every invitation for us to abstain from sin is an invitation to step into something infinitely greater, friends, than we can ask or imagine. God has something better. And that better thing this morning is exactly what Paul shows us in this passage. It's the gospel. It's Jesus. 
We can't have holiness without love. We can't have love without holiness, but we can't have either without Jesus. We can't have either without Jesus. That's why Paul, moved by the Spirit in verse 9 of chapter 4, says, friends, you've been taught by God to love one another. Jesus never went to Thessalonica. So how did the church in Thessalonica get taught by God to live a life of love? This is the gospel. It is the word of God that shows us what true love is. The love that we've always been looking for. The holiness that we've all longed for and fallen so, so short of in our lives. The gospel tells us that God, in love, sent his one and only holy son for us to suffer, to pour out his life, to experience abuse, rejection, and everything our unloving world could throw at him so that you and I could lay down our mud pies that we're so wrapped up in and experience the infinite joy of God's own holiness and love living inside us forever. If somebody has something better than that, tell me what it is. There is nothing, no greater gift than that right there. That the God of the universe, by sheer crazy grace, would say, I am going to make you as perfectly loving and holy as me for all time. But that's the gospel that we believe. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here this morning. I've been praying all week, knowing that this this passage would trigger for many pain, would trigger for many sensitive areas. I pray this morning that you saw Christ's love in this invitation to embrace a holy life. It would be such an honor this morning to, to pray with you, to get to know your story Our staff were here because we believe that Christ has called us to be a loving community of Jesus. And so I'd love to pray as we respond in worship this morning that the Holy Spirit would truly impress the love of Jesus Christ upon hearts this morning. Would you pray with me, friends? Father, thank you so much. For, Father, none of us sitting here this morning can experience the full extent of your holiness and love apart from your perfect son. Father, I pray that you, by grace, would allow us to increase and abound in love for one another and for all that we would grow, Lord, in holiness and love. Lord, may you teach us what it means to love like you love. Instruct our minds and hearts, stretch us, Lord. 
Lord, may we stand against the hate and the evil of our times as, as people who are set apart, but also sent to love. So I pray that your spirit would be very specific and that you'd impress upon us people in our world that you're calling us to love. Father, thank you so much. Lord, that you look down on us in spite of all of our imperfections and flaws, the wounds we carry. Lord, that you want to redeem and wash us clean so that we can be temples that you dwell in. Thank you, Lord, for that miracle. I pray, Lord, that you would do a healing work this morning in people who have not experienced love, have experienced hatred and and judgment. May you pour out grace on hurting hearts this morning. And may your love liberate us, Lord, and set us free. Father, we are too easily pleased so often. So stir up in us, Lord, a greater desire for your Holy Son and his truth. In Jesus' name we pray.